Hello and welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're excited to talk about the amazing Frank Zappa. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project. I am really excited to introduce our new team member. It's Alex Rosner, who has been a dear friend of mine for many, many years. So it's so awesome to have him here on the team. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much. And I'm very excited about this podcast. Today, we're going to focus on the musicians that played with Frank Zappa and also the technicians who worked for him over the years. It's really exciting to have this opportunity because all of us, or many of us, grew up listening to his music. So how exciting it is to learn a little bit more about the people who worked with him and their impression of who the guy really was. We first are going to focus on musicians. Uh, that's going to be Ezra Mohawk, Ernie Watts, Charles Owens, and Gail Davies. The second segment uh, is about the technicians, and uh, the third segment is about George Duke and Steve Vai, important musicians that uh, have had great careers on their own. And uh, Dan, I'm thinking the interview with George Duke was so amazing that you did. I would like to actually listen to that one first. <laughs> I don't blame you. What an amazing guy he was. I felt so privileged to have the opportunity to go to his home in Hollywood, California, thanks to our dear friend Eric Zobler, who helped make this all happen, and just sit down toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of my heroes in music. I mean, the guy who was right there when the piano and electric organ uh, transferred into the synthesizer era. I mean, that guy was cutting edge at that time, and it was so wonderful to hear his many stories. George Duke also visited the NAMM show numerous times, and uh, it was great seeing him there as well. Hmm. Yeah, F watching that guy perform is just an incredible. But I think the insight that the NAMM Oral History Program provides, this interview that we have with him, really sheds a completely different light. I mean, the human behind all that wonderful music. And that human, ladies and gentlemen, was a gentleman and a fantastic guy. I think you're really going to enjoy this. The, the fact that uh, the, the producer for World Pacific Jazz Records that signed Jean-Luc decided that uh, with the kind of jazz we played, we could get over to a rock audience. So that was kind of the beginning of fusion, of combining, you know, jazz with rock or jazz with Latin, whatever. And we played in a rock club. He said, I think you guys can get over to a rock audience. They'll be receptive. So we went and played a place here in L.A. called uh, The Experience. It was right on Sunset. And uh, everybody was there. I mean, Quincy Jones came. Cannibal Adderley came. There was uh, Frank Zappa came. Gerald Wilson. All these people I later wound up working with. And... Uh, I said, man, I got, this is my chance. You know, something told me that this was a pivotal moment in my life and that I needed to be on. And there was no piano. Well, there was an electric piano. And I said, oh, man, I don't want to play this thing. You know, it was a silver top Rhodes, which I did not want to play. But then later I found the joy of playing because I didn't have to play hard. I could turn it up, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't really get into it until after that gig, because once I played that The Experience gig with Jean-Luc, I could actually see that, hey, you know what? I can make something happen here. This, this is, you know, uh, this is the future. Something told me, and it got over to the rock audience. They could, it was, we could play louder and stronger. And so it, it, it had a, a vibe that I kind of liked, and it kind of drew me in. And once we did the King Kong record which with, with uh, Frank Zappa uh, and Jean-Luc, and I was involved with that, that kind of did it for me. I said, this is, this is a great instrument. When I was working on my master's at California State University, uh, we were doing, I was in an electronic music class. And so we would scrape chairs, do anything to make weird music, edit tape, put things together. But the, in terms of a synthesis, the first time I really heard it where I liked it 
And it really did something for me when I was in Brazil with Cannibal Adderley in 1971. And I was in that band. I'd already spent a year with Zappa and joined the Cannibal Adderley Quintet. We went to Brazil, and I was on uh, Rio de Janeiro Beach, even Nima Beach, actually. And I heard this music. I was like, what the heck is that? And it turned out to be the Mahavishnu Orchestra with Jan Hammer playing uh, Minimo. I'd never heard of I didn't know what a Minimo was. I didn't know who Jan Hammer was. I didn't know who the Mahavishnu Orchestra was. I just said, in Brazil, of all places, what the heck is this? As soon as I got back to L.A., uh, I bought it. And uh, that actually changed my life. And I, you know, I was rejoined Frank uh, in 1973. I still wasn't sold. But I found out that right around that time, 71, 72, that Jan Harm was playing a Minimo. So I said, okay, that's his thing. Let me, what else is out there? I found out and met this guy. I don't even remember where I met him. His name was Tom Oberheim. And he had the, you know, some Oberheim stuff. I went out to the factory, looked at the stuff, and I decided, hey, there's a small instrument called the Arp Odyssey. Let me make that my instrument. So I decided, I, I, I bought one. Tom was a good guy. He worked with me on learning what was happening. And I started messing around with that, and and eventually uh, I got a mini Moog as well, and 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 OBX and blah blah blah, and then I started buying synthesizers. Uh, but that didn't really happen until I was with Zappa, when I, you know, he just told me he says, "Man, you need to play synthesizers," and I was like, "Well, it's kind of like, you know, going back to school and reading these manuals. I'm not really into that. It took me years to learn how to play the piano." I don't know. And so he says, well, I'm going to buy you one. And he bought, he bought an, he had an ARP 2600. I said, I, there's no way I can do anything with this. There's these, you know, it's just impossible. I, I felt like I was a computer technician or something, you know, trying to get a sound out of this thing. You know, I couldn't make any music out of it. And so I said, this doesn't sound like Jan Hammer to me. But then what happened is he bought a mini mode. Put it on, put it on my Fender Rhodes, and he said, and he said, well, maybe you'll bump it, and a sound will come out, and you'll like it. And so I bumped it one day, and I said, that sounds pretty cool. And then I saw this little wheel over there, and I said, I can change the pitch. Whoa! And so I said, that was pretty cool. So now I used to listen to Cannibal Adderley. Um, when Yusef Latif was a flute player, playing with him, and he used to make this, let this bend this note, kind of haunting, kind of sound. And I said, man, if I can make my synthesizer sound like that, I will get into this thing. That's That would be me. It's not just outer space music, but I can actually make a melody out of that that sound different than all the guys that are playing Nutville music, and I still won't sound like Jan Hammer. I wanted to find out, find me in this. And so I said, I can play the blues on this thing. And that's what interested me. So I took that mini Moog, and I, and I developed a technique for using that wheel, and it changed my life. Absolutely. The the little potential the little little pot on the Arp Odyssey and the wheel on the mini mold. <laughs> two two totally different things to me. It's like for me, the Arp was the, the female and the mold was the male. And I had them both side by side and uh man, for the next many, many years. I mean that's that was my life. Can you tell me about some of the uh, recordings that you did in those early years with the ARP and the Minimode? Um, some of the earliest records I made that I actually used the ARP and the Minimode were my records, which were like uh, Faces and Reflections. And one is a, it's out called My Soul Now, which is on a, a double disc that uh, uh, Universal Germany put out. Uh, Feel. The, all of those kinds, the R will prevail. The, the I love the blue shirt, my cry. Those are early records that I began really first testing synthesis, and of course all the Frank Zappa records. Everything that from from uh, I, I mean, I, the first thing I did was Chunga's Revenge, right on up to uh, Bongo Fury, and that includes uh, Apostrophe, uh, Two Hundred Motels. Well, Two Hundred Motels, I played more trombone. Ian Underwood was playing a lot of the synthesizer. I hadn't really gotten there yet, you know. So Ian was, but Ian was into it. Ian Underwood, he was, so he was ahead of me in terms of that. He played the ARP twenty six hundred, but I kind of got into it. And by the time I hit 73, 72, 73, I was devoted. It was done, and I, I that's that was my instrument. 
What was it like for you when uh, Frank uh, finally called you a mother? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, you know, the, the, the weird thing is I was at my mom's house. And I come there for a Sunday to have dinner with lunch, which is normally what I do on every Sunday. I drive to San Francisco. And uh, my mom says, uh, uh, there's somebody on the phone named Zupa. I said, oh, you mean oh, Zappa. And I'd already played one show with him by that time uh, at the with a symphony orchestra a thing at the UCLA. It was interesting show, you know, very challenging music. And so I said, you're Zappa. So I, uh, I, so I went over to the phone. I said, hi. He says, George, I want you to join the mothers. And I said, who? He says, no, not the who, the mothers. I didn't even know who the who was. <clears throat> now, you know, I had no idea who the who was. So he says, the mothers. Well, who are they? He said, that's my band. He says, I want you to come to Los Angeles and blah, 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 blah. So I said, okay. So I, they sent me a ticket. I flew to L.A., went to rehearsal, and Frank had me uh, playing some 1950 kind of rock and roll. No, and, you know, I immediately went into my jazz extensions and stuff, and Frank said, well, stop, stop, stop. He said, just triads, man, triads. And I was like, triads? And he says, yeah. And I said, okay. So he says, wait a minute. He says, that's what the music calls for. He says, if you can't, he says, there's something wrong with your hand. You can't play it. I said, no. He said, oh, it's beneath you to play triads. I said, well, I kind of like to stretch out. He said, that's not what the song calls for. You play what the song calls for, you leave. So I had, that was the crux of the biscuit. I had a decision to make. I decided to stay. I played those triads. And at the end of that uh, session, Frank says, you are now a mother. <laughs> Simple as that. But then I found out that it was the mothers of invention. You know, so uh, it was always funny to me. He called me a mother. Yeah, I was a mother. <laughs> well, so were a whole lot of other people. Yeah, that's right. Well, Frank was uh, Frank was um, with me, and I never understood exactly why I was in that band because he brought a lot of things out of me that that I don't know if anybody else could have or it would take longer to do. I mean, I didn't have a sense of humor. I was like, you know, off stage maybe, but on stage I was a serious jazz guy. You know, you know black suit, white you know, black tie, thin black tie, no smiling, you know, playing. And he, he said, you need to loosen up. You know, he said, you'll live longer, blah, blah. He taught me a lot of things. And, uh, but he always allowed me to be free, you know, especially once I understood the environment, musical environment of what he wanted and desired. Uh, I could be very free within that environment. And I wound up creating a lot of stuff. I mean, from synthesizer patches to, to whatever happened, on the road, wound up in the music, some kind of way. Frank and it would it would evolve on the road. This wasn't always rehearsed. This was something where Frank would just said, "I want you to do that tomorrow night on stage." You know, so you really had to kind of watch what you what you did <laughs> off stage because Frank would tell you to do it. And then, of course, in the bus later on, he we would listen to the show each night after we got on the bus going to the next town. And he said, "Okay, I don't like what you did there. Do this." So it was always a process, the whole experience. But uh, it was an amazing experience working with Frank, an amazing learning experience. The guy was a genius, totally brilliant, and there, I can't see there ever being anybody quite like him again. What sort of guy was he off <clears throat> Funny. Frank was funny, drank a lot of coffee, liked good wine. Um, didn't drink a lot of wine, as far as I know. Uh, whenever I saw him, but but when he drank wine, it was it was very very high quality, very expensive wine, and he would do that generally once a tour with the band. He'd take us out to the dinner and buy a very expensive bottle of wine. <clears throat> uh, smoked smoked a lot of cigarettes all the time. Uh, had a lot of nervous energy. His foot was like all the time like that. Uh, but constantly drank coffee and smoked cigarettes. Always thinking about music. Music was totally his obsession, and. Uh, I, the guy was just brilliant. I mean, he taught me how he, for example, he'd come up to me. He says, George, you, he says, uh, what's wrong? I said, man, he says, I said, I, I, there's a piece of equipment I want, you know, that I think I need. And he said, he says, look, he says, you should find a way to invest in yourself. He says, uh, don't be afraid to, to get what you need to produce what you need 
to produce. He says, but that's going to mean more to you than the stock market in the end. He says, learn to invest in yourself. He says, that's where your true worth is. And so, you know, and I, I had to think about this. Things like and when I was first joining the band, he says, you know, George, you don't have to be heavy to be heavy. And I was like, okay. Now I wasn't heavy then. I don't mean <laughs> But he's always, oh, he's, he's, I, he, I didn't have to be dark, heavy to be, have a heavy, heavy spirit. I didn't have to have that in order to be a great musician. I finally figured out what he meant. There were little things like that. George, you should play synthesizers. George, you should sing. I need you to sing this part. Frank, I don't sing. Yes, you do. I need you to sing this part because everybody else is doing something else on stage. So you got to sing this note. Okay, Frank. And that worked in doing harmonies to eventually I was singing the lead some of these songs. George, you need to get out from in, behind these walls of keyboards. You need to come out front to do this. And I said, oh man, I feel safe back here. I'm surrounded by speakers and Fender Rhodes and many modes and clavinets. And, and he says, no, no, you need, to, you need to come out from behind there. That's why this instrument that Wayne Yentas made was so freeing. Mm. Just all, Many things like that. You know, you let your humor out. There's just uh, it's a myriad of things that Frank taught me. That's some unbelievable stuff. I love to listen to that stuff that you guys created. Really neat. Pretty amazing. And the synthesis was, was amazing because it was all one note at a time. This was not, there were no polyphonic uh, instruments that I'm aware of at the time. Boy, Alex, I really love listening to George Duke. What an amazing guy. And that was such an incredible opportunity. That was his 2010 NAM oral history interview, George Duke. As we talk about uh, Frank Zappa today on the Music History Project, let's continue with the uh, segment of musicians that worked with uh, Frank over the years. We're going to start with Ezra Mohawk. Ezra was interviewed in 2019. She's a, a songwriter, singer who worked with Frank going way back to the 60s. And in um, later in her life, in the 70s and early 80s, some of you out there who loved schoolhouse rock might remember some of the songs that she wrote for those singing, uh, singing cartoons that all educated us on grammar and bills and things like that. She did Interjection, which was one of my favorites of the uh, schoolhouse rock programs. Ezra met uh, Frank Zappa in 1967. She recalls how she met him in this little bit and... Uh, how she worked with him. Mm, awesome. Here's Ezra Mohawk. How did you get hooked up with Frank Zappa? Walking down the street. <laughs> with, uh, I was visiting New York from Philly with two, these two gals from L.A. And as we're walking down Bleecker Street, there he is. And um, they yelled out, Ben Frank's Canners, which were two hangouts that he would, you know, restaurants that, uh, that in LA that he would uh, would be in, and um, so he let us all in for free. He realized I was like not from LA, <laughs> but I went on anyway. He, he figured he learned somehow that I played music and that I played uh, keyboards, and then uh, when Don Preston wasn't feeling well, um, and he had a new electric keyboard, Frank did. He asked me to play it for him to test it out. And the only thing I know how to play, once again, are my own songs. And, and actually, I have to sing along. So I started to do one of my songs. He like, he, he, he jumped off the stage. He got a mic. He put it in front of me. He jumped off the stage again. And, and then after whatever, I finished the song, he said, come with me. And he, he said, come into my office. And so he actually just went two rows back in the theater and sat down and he said, how would you like to be a mother? I said, sure. I mean, a band like that, it was like magic when they played, when we, when we jammed together. Because I could do the vocalizations with the horn players. You know, I used my voice like an instrument. And I realized years later I ran into, after I was gone, he would hire singers to do what I did. Mm. So I kind of created a piece of what stayed with the mothers even after I was gone. I didn't realize that until many years later. 
Okay, Alex, uh, that was Ezra Mohawk, and we're going to continue with some of the uh, amazing musicians that have been interviewed for the NAM Oral History Program over the years, talking about Frank Zappa today. Uh, next up is uh, one of the great studio musicians, great saxophone player, and a guy that I've admired for many, many years, Ernie Watts. Yeah, Ernie Watts, he actually played also on that famous King Kong album of Jean-Luc Ponty with George Duke that we have heard before mm. about. And uh, he also uh, played the mystery horn on the Grand Wazoo. That's, that was <laughs> recorded in 1972. Awesome. So let's hear a little bit from Ernie Watts. We started playing together when he was putting together the, the Grand Wazoo. And during that period where he was doing large orchestral pieces that were his music. Uh, you know, his music was very, it, it, to me, it was like, it, to me, it was, it, it, it was like contemporary classical music that was driven by a, a rock and roll rhythm section. But all, he wrote down every note. He wrote down every note of the drum part. He wrote everything out, and some of it was quite difficult, so that was a lot of fun. That was good to do. And uh, I think the first project I did with him was a Jean-Luc Ponty project called King Kong. And it was Jean-Luc Ponty's first album that he did in the United States. And then after that, we did uh, the Grand Wazoo. And, uh, you know, that little caricature on the front, that's a caricature of me with the, with the mystery horn. And the mystery horn is a old Busher C melody saxophone. I still have that instrument. And we did things with Zubin Mehta and the, and the Philharmonic. He did a whole bunch of jazz things with John Guerin and uh, George Duke and myself. And uh, I think that I think those things finally came out. I don't have copies of those, but we did a whole bunch of jazz things with, 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 with Frank. Frank was very involved in playing all kinds of music. He said funny things but he didn't mean them. You know, he's very sarcastic. One of his big lines was, jazz isn't dead. It just smells funny, you know. But he was serious about, about improvising and stuff too, you know. He was, a, he was a brilliant man. This is such an enjoyable podcast, listening to the perspectives that many people had who worked with Frank Zappa about this guy, Frank Zappa. I mean, we've listened to his music for so many years, and um, this insight is really interesting to me. I think I'm going to start listening to his music a little differently, having heard these different perspectives. So let's continue on with this. Uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, there was a little bit of clearing, as some people might know, in uh, September and October 2021, and that was my chance to uh, swing up to Los Angeles to interview Charlie Owens. Char Charlie Owens, uh, what a fantastic musician and as well a great music educator. Done a lot of great stuff in creating programs for kids in different colleges and different organizations. Super guy. So I'm excited that we're going to talk a little bit about him. Charles in his interview talks about how challenging the music of Frank Zappa was and that he had a wonderful time actually growing his his uh, abilities and being able to play better and better awesome well let's get to it here's charles owens i also frank played with frank zappa for a minute that did me a lot of good too tell me about that well <clears throat> i'm sitting here and harold land calls me up and says I, I got a gig that i can't make charlie want to see if i can turn you on to it they needed somebody to play oboe and tenor. So Harold would recommend it. So I went up to the rehearsal and f fell in the, in the cut there and started playing what Frank wanted us to do, which was whew, some very difficult music with a lot of odd meters and all that kind of stuff. So uh, eventually 
I think he didn't want the oboe after all, so I wound up playing tenor and alto. And um, it was, um, all I can say is it was extremely exciting, because at that time is when I got the John Mayall gig. And um, I could have played with John Mayall for about much longer than I did with Frank, but I wanted to play with Frank because his music was so hard. I wanted to see if I could do that. And um, we rehearsed for about three months to play a gig for two weeks. We played at the Hollywood Bowl, then we went to Europe and stuff like that. But it was very, very rewarding. That was probably the best period of my musicianship improved more at that time with Frank Zappa than any other time. So it was a real challenge and some great, great, great Malcolm McNabb was playing there, and he was doing uh, Dynasty at that time, and everybody wanted to be around uh, him, and he's a great trumpet player. And when, he took, when Frank Zappa took us to New York, well, Malcolm McNabb took some lessons from the symphony player back to who's the lead trumpet player in the, the New York field, stuff like that. So he was still trying to get better. And, um, but it was, it, was, it was a fun experience, too, and had to, had to grow, and Frank Zappa was really cool. I needed some money, and so I said, Frank, can I get a draw? Uh, he says, no, you can't, but there's nothing wrong with asking. <laughs> and that was the end of that. <laughs> what, what, how did you see his musicianship? Pretty Who's, smart guy, right, M musically? He was brilliant, because anybody that needed any kind of, couldn't play a part, he could play it on his guitar. And he wrote all this stuff. He was brilliant and fun to be around. And his kids were pretty small at that time. They were named Sun and Moon or something like that. And uh, it was, he was, he was brilliant. He was really brilliant. And he just, I think he just went to El Camino College for a couple of semesters to learn what he wanted to learn. And then went and did it. Wow. It's uh, fun to be around great people. And I, he wasn't wa wagging his tail or anything like that. He was just great and had a lot of great people in the band. You know, you, you can just learn so much when you're around great people like that. It's, it's exciting, man, and, and thrilling. So that was cool. This is great perspective. All right, that was Charles Owens talking about his time with Frank Zappa and the challenging uh, musical compositions that he was forced to play, but loved it and enjoyed it and grew from it. I love that. We're going to move on to a 2019 NAM Oral History interview with one of the greats, Gail Davies, thought to be one of the first female producers in Nashville. She's also a great singer-songwriter. She gave us songs like Blue Heartache, one of my all-time favorites, and a big hit for a lot of different artists, Bucket of the South. You might also know Gail's brother, the late, great Ron Davies. Great songwriter as well. So we're going to hear her perspective on Frank Zappa. Yeah, this is a quick one, but it's always insightful. Even the little... Uh, pieces of knowledge that you get from just uh, short encounters with Frank Zappa. Uh, I was singing with the Midnight Band at the Troubadour and Frank came in, he was sitting right in the front row, and I would end my set, I was singing rock and roll then, not country, by, by dropping to my knees and screaming this highest note of this song, Randy Newman's song called Guilty. I'm guilty! You know, and I just go, ah! you know, and he just loved it. I mean, he was on his feet and screaming and, and he asked me, um, if I would come to uh, a band practice that he was putting together a band to go on tour to Europe. But I'd already committed to tour with Roger Miller. It was right during that same time. And I went to the rehearsal because I, I just had to, it was Frank Zappa, you know. And it was right down there on Sunset Boulevard and uh, Rehearsal Hall. And it was fantastic. He would, he would like play notes, uh, play a lick on the guitar and then ask me to sing it back note for note. And I could, and he thought that was really cool. Uh, and he was going to produce this movie. He wanted me to be in this movie about this woman that lands on this planet that's inhabited by s spiders. <laughs> it, was, it was weird even for Frank Zappa. And he was so cool. I thought, well, Zappa, you know, he's going to be a druggie and 
but he wasn't. He was straight, he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs. And during the rehearsal, his wife, whose name was also Gail, showed up with their children. Um, you know, and they were wild. They were just all over everything and playing the drums and jumping off the chairs. Those were some of the musicians that worked with him over the years. And now Alex has prepared a second segment talking about the technology behind the music and the instrumentation and the development of instruments. It's a very important part of Frank Zappa's um, music and his contribution to all of us, not just in the recordings that he created, but in the instruments he inspired and helped develop. I think that's a really important part. Yes, and this actually goes back to uh, the first uh, interview that we listened to George Duke. He talks very much about uh, how important sound was for Frank Zappa. And uh, you got a wonderful interview with Arthur Slotman, who worked in Frank Zappa's studio, at his home studio. And uh, he talks in detail about how the studio was put together, how Frank Zappa worked, and... uh, relates everything to particular records as well, which is very interesting for people who know his music very well and can relate to the technological emphasis that Frank put on certain things, like, for example, Ike Willis and Mm. Ray White playing both uh, guitar, and he wanted the guitars to sound very similar, so you would have this almost like stereo sound with two musicians playing... uh, Details like that uh, are are all over the place in this interview. It's is a very in-depth part, so I'm really happy that uh, you were able to capture this one. It also, to me, shows the depth of Frank Zappa, right? I mean, it's not just musical notes to him. He wants all of these things to factor in to this larger sound. And that's, I think, why we still listen to his music. So let's get started with this great segment. Here is Arthur Slotman. I, I worked on synthesizers. Remember the ARP 2800? I was the uh, synthesizer tech. In fact, I did warranty repair work for Moogs and ARPs and all that kind of stuff. And um, got this call from Frank Zappa, who was doing a, uh, working on an album called Zoot Allures, and he was doing a keyboard bass part and the synthesizer broke down and I got the call to go to Third Street Record Plant and fix it and I fixed it and then I started doing freelance work for him and I eventually started working for him full time. And so I worked for him for off and on for a good 10 years. I just was fascinated with synthesizers so I got heavily into that. And you really watched um, that evolution. That's what's oh, really yeah. exciting. Tell me Absolutely. a little bit about what you saw as far as these products coming out one after another. Well, I guess they were just brand new. So nobody really, when that ARP 2800 hit the streets, um, at least for me, I don't know about anybody else, but there were very few musicians that even knew what that was about. Mm-hmm. And really the way that they got their big claim to fame, I guess, is from people like Frank and Stevie Wonder. He's another one who had the ARP 2600s. I'm sure there were a whole handful of English bands that had had ARP stuff and Moog stuff, but I, I, um, I just mainly worked on the uh, consumer level type stuff, like both ARP and Moog had these big engineered systems that were, you know, they'd fill up this wall of knobs. In fact, the 2500 uh, was, what's that movie? The thir- Oh, uh, uh, Close Encounters? Yes, that was an ARP 2500. Very few of those got sold, but um, the, I worked a lot on uh, 2600s and the 2800s. And uh, just being in the studios and working with technology that just doesn't even exist anymore. You know, the technology has just changed so much. 
um, from, and at the time it was changing rapidly too. Right? It, it was, but it, guys. it was getting. But what was happening was consoles were getting bigger with more bells and whistles, and tape machines were getting more track counts. Uh, you know, because when I first started, the first multi tracks that I saw were four and eight tracks. You know, and then sixteen tracks, and then twenty four tracks. Uh, and then, you know, everything started going digital and it was 32 and 48 tracks. So um, I saw that whole progression from analog to digital. And the, the Sony, I worked a lot, um, did a lot of work on Sony PCM24 tracks. Um, and the PCM digital stuff because Frank was all very, got all of that stuff brand new. Um, or, you know, he was like, not a beta test site, but as soon as it became commercially available, he was right on it, kind of thing. In fact, I think he's one of the first first people that had two of the PCM24 tracks in LA. I think it, it was him and uh, Neil Young bought theirs at the, about the same time. So I remember Frank and him talking on the phone about their <laughs> digital tape machines. That's the other thing that I did for Frank, was I built a lot of electronics for him, custom electronics, like what we were talking about, the synthesizers, but I did a lot of um, uh, preamp work for him, for his guitars, and one of the first things that I did uh, in 1970, I guess 79, I think is when Steve Vai joined the band, I put in a preamp in his guitar, I put in preamps in, Frank got a Fender endorsement, they came up to the house and gave him uh, three or four Strat guitars and a couple of basses, and two of these guitars were unique looking in that they were Fender Stratocasters, but they had the brass, and I haven't seen this lately, they had sort of this real shiny gold brass pickguards. Uh, metal pickguards. They, they looked kind of like, and Frank had um, two guitar players in the band, um, Ike and Ray White. Uh, and so he wanted their guitars to sound similar because he was going to use them as a stereo image, and so he wanted these preamps built, and I built preamps in their guitars so that they'd have this sound design that Frank was doing. Um, so I started doing that, and then I started doing custom stuff for his guitars. And what ended up in one of the guitars uh, was this, well, I'll tell you the whole story. I was down in the shop because the studio was, the, it, his house was up in Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, owned, what's her name owns it now? Now I can't think, Lady, uh, Lady Gaga? owns, she bought the, the Frank's house. In any case, um, it, it was, have you ever been in, on Woodrow Wilson in LA? Yeah. Okay, so if you come off of Laurel Canyon and go right across into Woodrow Wilson Drive, their house is on the left, or it was on the left. And so the driveways or the garages were down at this level, and the studio was at this level, and the house was at this level. And so my shop was down here at this level, right under the control room. In any case, Frank comes downstairs, and he's talking to me about something, telling me about a setup or whatever. And um, he sees this piece of gear over in the corner, and he goes, oh, man, I love those things, except they're too noisy. And um, it turned out to be this thing called a harmonic energizer. I think that's what it was called, the harmonic energizer. Um, and I said, well, I'll have a look at it and see if I can clean it up. And so I opened it up and I saw what it was and I went up to Frank and I said, those are just parametric EQs and I can make those much cleaner and I can even put them in your guitar. And so we spent about three weeks trying out well, there were two things going on. We spent about three weeks trying out guitars, pickup arrangements, all kinds of 
configurations on two strats, a Les Paul and an SG. And in one of the strats, I put that parametric EQ. And it turned out that the, and I've actually put two bands in it because first I started with one band and he said, can you do another one? And so it ended up with a low band and a high band, meaning that one had a range of about, I would say 30 hertz to about one kilohertz, and the other one had a range of about 500 hertz out to about uh, 12 kilohertz. And so, and more gain than he would ever use, but um, he ended up loving those things, and I ended up putting them in every one of his stage guitars. And so this is another insight to Frank. Unless you can do what Frank is doing at that any moment, then you're not in the picture. You know, and I'll give you an example of Frank. If, if you tell him you can do something for him, and then you don't deliver, next. And it's not like, you know, if you tell him you can do something and you do it and you make it happen, then, you're, then he'll continue to use you. As much as if you don't deliver something that you say you can do, then you're out. My sister was married to Frank. So I met Frank when he, in 1970, well actually I met him in 1961. I uh, went to their house and uh, for vacation for about two weeks, I think, and met him uh, and uh, thought he was really cool and but then, in 1971, I think it was 1970 or 71, uh, he had the very misfortune uh, to get ver uh, seriously injured because some uh, idiot fan pushed him on stage and he went back into the orchestra pit. So, I mean, he was laid up for a year. He was seriously injured. He. Uh, um, one leg became shorter than the other. He bit his lip when he was uh, when he hit the floor. Because I think what happened, I, I wasn't there, but what I heard was he hit and some his chin hit something a protrusion as he was going down. So that's what made him bite his lip, and then he landed, I guess, on his legs and he broke, shattered one of his legs, and. Um, mm. So in any case, he was seriously injured and he was laid up. And that was right around the time, for people who know about Frank Zappa, when he was doing Waka Chawaka. During that time, he wrote Waka Chawaka and the Grand Wazoo. He wrote that music when he was in a wheelchair for a year. So in any case, uh, he came and stayed with us in Hawaii for two weeks to just right after the accident happened, after he got out of the hospital in England, they flew right to Hawaii and they stayed with us for two weeks. And he, I had some buddies that lived next door, two brothers that were really close friends who were musicians and they were better than me. I remember I was just learning how to play guitar when I was, I guess I was 19 when this happened, but he showed us a bunch of stuff. And some of the stuff is stuff I've never even heard on record, but he used us as instruments where he would play like he knew what my abilities were, so he gave me very simple parts to play. He gave them more elaborate parts to play because they were better. And then he would start this drum machine and we'd play and then he would noodle across that and try out different things. And some of that stuff was the beginnings or the stuff that he was just developing for those two records. So I can remember that, but he even showed us stuff that I've never heard on any records <laughs> kind of thing. But in any case, that's how I know, met him. Wow. So, well, tell me a little bit it, about your, your impression of him. Um, well, I feel very fortunate that I met someone like him because he was definitely not your average person. And everything that you've heard about the fact that he didn't do drugs and all of that, all of that is true. He was just really the straightest arrow type person I've ever met in my life and a serious workaholic. I mean, 18 hour days were normal days for him every day of the week. 
He didn't party, he didn't go to bars, he didn't do vacations. He was constantly writing music or developing projects or whatever. It was constant. So in that regard, extremely unusual. I don't think I've met anybody that was, has been more you know, focused. I mean, I've met some people that remind me of him, but don't come close to how focused he was. And it's neat to, to hear your insight about his interest in, because we know about electronic music and the synthesizers were, always seemed to be part of what he created. But your, you know, your insight is... Uh, well, I, I, actually, I actually, yeah, I, I had to, for, because I was part of the family, I actually lived with them for about five or six years. So I was, I was actually part of the family there for a while. Because he, what, he, what happened was, when I, I first started, he first got the big clue that I could fix stuff when I went over to the record plant and fixed the 2600. Um, but, um, so I got hired to work at a studio and he was just starting to build a studio at his house. So I was still working at Valley Sound, but as soon as his studio got built, he hired me to come up and do studio maintenance at the house and I eventually moved in. I started living there. What was his studio like? Oh, it was awesome. Frank had uh, one, two, three uh, reverb environments where he could get massive amounts of reverb out of the room, uh, out of acoustically out of the rooms, and you can hear it on his records. You can hear it on um, uh, "You Are What You Is." When you hear those big reverbs on the background vocals and the big lush vocals. The, those, that reverb is actually acoustic reverb from the rooms in his studio. So whenever you hear reverb, a lot of it is just acoustic because he had that capability. And he could tune it by opening and closing doors. He could make it shorter or longer. So, and that was pretty, uh, really advanced. I mean, I worked at the record plant, I worked at Kendon, I worked at Sony, and I worked at, uh, Record One, I worked at a whole bunch of studios in LA and none of them had a reverb environments like that. They had bright rooms where they had, you know, hard uh, like rock floors with hard panels and glass opening doors. So you go in there and clap your hands and you would get, you heard that reverb time. That's kind of like what Frank could get out of his room without the, um, uh, Slap back that uh, what do they call that? See hear that? Yeah, that is undesirable, but the, the the lushness that you hear without that twittering at the top, Frank's rooms would just go like that. How this room sh would go if it was treated a little bit. Um, but in, in any case, um, uh, his studio was very, very nice. We did custom electronics for interfacing keyboards because I had such a, uh, a, a good foundation or background in synthesizers and modifying Moogs and ARPs to have CV outputs and trigger and gates and all of that. So I did that kind of stuff for his keyboards to so that he could uh, from one keyboard play three or four instruments. Now this was all before MIDI. Now you just hook up MIDI cables and you can control the world. But this is before MIDI and so he was trying to have from one keyboard have multiple timbres or instruments play. And so we did that all with uh, analog control voltages, gates and triggers. And so I did that with the CS80 which was actually a digital device that I had to convert the digital or put a D to A to create the analog voltages and that was the first that that, that had ever happened. So uh, and he did a number of records, You Are What You Is and some records that I can't even remember the names but but they're there and whenever you hear those synthesizers with big layered parts it's one guy playing one set of keys 
and it's stacked instead of overdubs kind of thing. Did Frank have a favorite synth? Uh, well, he used whatever was, like I remember showing him how to do patches on the ARP 2600, and I would come up with a patch, and then he'd use it as a percussion type effect or something and record it. So he would use it. Frank was more about sound, and not so much. So I'll tell you, if he had a favorite, the only synthesizer that I really saw that he really spent, I remember when he got the first Lynn drum machine, it was... Uh, it was really an insight to see that he got that and he spent like three weeks with it, learning everything about that instrument. But I think because of what he did, that's where the Black Page came from. A whole bunch of these drum things, and I wish I could name all of these things that he did, but the Black Page is a very famous piece of music. And I remember that shortly after he did this long stint, three weeks. I mean, 18-hour days going in there and playing around with this Lindrum version one machine. He wrote a lot of uh, music based on the patterns and things that he, sequences that he developed on that. Um, so that was unusual. But in terms of favorite synths, I don't think he had, he just loved sound. So anything that made an unusual sound or a great sound was, if it captured his imagination, then that's where he went. And he just followed it, kind of thing. Um, and that's how he was, basically. If, if he was just, if he, he would get co concepts in his mind and try to follow wherever those concepts led him. I think that's how he created everything that he did. I mean, from my perspective, or from my, uh, how I interpreted it. You know, Alex, one of the things I find fascinating about this particular segment is uh, both of these gentlemen, the one we're about to hear and the one we just heard, Arthur Slopeman, um, were technicians prior to working with Frank. So they had a real great understanding of uh, instrumentation and how they work. Uh, Arthur worked at the record plant as a repair tech, and the next guy is a guitar tech. Thomas Nordeg met Frank Zappa through Peter Wolf as his uh, keyboard tech. He also was keyboard tech for Tommy Mars during the time with Frank Zappa, and he then was guitar tech. Fantastic. Well, let's hear what Thomas has to say about Frank Zappa. I came back with a uh, keyboard player from Vienna, Peter Wolf, like Mo uh, Mozart at four type guy, you know, prodigy. And we said we'll try to make it to Los Angeles, you know, where the music scene supposedly wasn't. So that's where we ended up, and uh, money was just running out. We got an apartment right in Hollywood and Santa Monica and then the Crescent Heights, and uh, we were going every day to the one and only guitar center in the in the states, opposite where it's now on Sunset. Every day, Peter always like the latest gear. You know, he was uh, so we had a phone also landline, of course, and exchange phone numbers. And I'd say two months into it, uh, the phone rang and hi, this is Frank Zappa. Can I talk to Peter Wolf? So one of Frank's keyboard players, Frank was just re uh, re regrouping a band, told Frank about it. So we went straight up. Uh, Peter auditioned and got the gig and. Uh, and I stayed with Frank six years, the best time in my life, 76 to 83. Uh, Frank Zappa's best thing, uh, not only musically, just as a, as a whole. Uh, just get this, Frank died on cancer at 52 with 80 released albums with unmatched content, I might add too, you know. And uh, work, 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 work. And that's why I met Steve Vai, who I've been working with since 99 now. And uh, when I when I joined uh, Peter and me, it was a, the, Perry Bozzi was a drummer and Patrick, they were the band. And then he had Adrian Ballou, he found in Nashville in the bar from on guitar, and uh, Ed Mann, Tommy Mars, second keyboard player and all that. And uh, Was George Duke with them? Uh, that was before, that was oh, okay. two, two, two bands before. It was uh, uh, Zuda Lures was with oh. Eddie Jobson before us, and then that's a new band that Frank put together. and. Uh, so that's really where I learned uh, the whole, uh, my whole trade or whatever you will from doing it. And it was interesting, I mean, today's terms, 
uh, or even back then with Frank, everybody uh, on the, when you get to the gig, everybody got out of the uh, bus and, uh, and everybody helped with the lights, getting the lights up, learn to plug it in. Same with the audio. Frank had his own lights and, and audio, you know. And for me, coming from Little Austria, I remember the first tour we did, uh, the semi-truck, you know, we had. And, uh, in Austria, they don't have semis, at least at that point they didn't, you know. I thought, when is that going to be empty? How am I going to do this and all that, you know? So, but uh, you, you learn and everybody, you know, learned. I was keyboard tech and then I was like 200 shows. I was cameraman for Frank. Frank gave everybody what Frank Zappa was so good at, if you can say that. But he pulled out of these musicians that he hired and saw uh, talent and, uh, you know, they, they would never have gotten there if it wasn't for Frank to you know, learn and then on the fly and on the job, you know, experience and all that. So that was my best time. And uh, till 83, I was there. And then after, after Adrian Ballou won Cucurulo, uh from, uh, you know, a fan, big fan from Frank, from the East Coast, New York, he uh, can hang around and Frank said, I'll try you out. And he got the gig and I've been with Warren now for just basically 40 years. As Thomas said, he continued working with Warren Cocorolo for a long time, but he also uh, was guitar tech for Steve Vai. And talking about Steve Vai, we do also have his thoughts about Frank Zappa. As we know, he started very early playing with him on tour. Great. So let's hear Steve Vai from his 2008 NAM oral history interview. I um, you know, like all good little... Italian boys from Long Island. I played the accordion when I was 10. And uh, I went to Berklee College of Music after that because I was very interested in the idea of music as a written art form. Um, always fascinated with the little black dots. And uh, was actually composing before I started playing the guitar. But I grew up as a teenager in the 70s when all that great you know, progressive rock music like Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull, Queen, and you know, that rock of the 70s and even Hendrix and stuff like that was very popular. So I, f I feel, probably like most people, that they grew up in the best musical period that there was, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and then um, <clears throat> out, of, out of college, out of Berkeley, I was uh, 18, actually, when I started working for Frank Zappa. I was transcribing music. It's the process of listening to it and writing it down in musical notation form. And uh, <clears throat> always wanted to move out to California ever since I first saw the Partridge family on television when I was 12, because I just thought it was great that young kids could play instruments. I didn't know it really wasn't them. What a rip. <laughs> but anyway, I moved out to California when I was 20, and I joined Frank Zappa's band and toured with him for three years. It was a fantastic experience, as you can well imagine. Frank was the most extraordinary man I ever met. You know. Um, I was enamored with his music and his whole thing when I was young. And to have the opportunity to work for him, you know, to this day, I, I look back at that experience and, I'm, and I think, you know, did I really go through all that? Did I really sit there with him for like, you know, nine days in the studio at a stretch and, and you know, do all those tours and play all those shows and hear him speak all those beautiful things that he used to say? He was just amazing kind of a guy. and. Uh, you know, when I, I, when I was going through it, I was very young and just trying to keep up. And, and, and I just stayed absorbed. My whole goal when I was with Frank was to play his music on my guitar the, better than he, uh, you know, would expect it. And uh, I don't know if I achieved that, but I, I got through it. And, uh, and um, a day doesn't go by where I don't reflect on some of the things because you know as you go through the business and you mature you look back at your past and I see how Frank did his business and and you know how he uh, conducted himself uh, and you know I it's still a learning experience he was brilliant Frank besides all of the things that uh, you know musically he's known for being first you know a composer a guitar player all these things he had such a command of the English language. He just, even just his sentence structure left nothing to be, uh, you know, um, there was no confusing what he was saying. When you were talking to Frank, you better be prepared to hear the truth. 
And he could take a situation and have this just this instinctive intuition about getting to the core in a, in a, in a flash. And he can summarize what you're saying, what the situation is, what you're really saying, and you don't even know that you're saying, and give it to you back in sometimes as little as an eyebrow, you know, and or a, a sentence that just, there's no, you know, it, when he would talk, there, you'd never hear him say, um, uh, or, you know, I think, you know, boom, it's unequivocal. Okay, Alex, well, this will wrap up our podcast today, looking at the music and the person of Frank Zappa. I really appreciate everybody tuning in and listening. Um, You know, what's amazing to me is just the depth of this guy, his intelligence, his his musicianship, uh, his passion, and his interest in pushing the musicians and singers that worked with him. I think that's a really important part of the music of Frank Zappa. And how he was always on the search for new sounds. That's a story that, a storyline that goes all along with his career. He was one of the first ones who also owned a synclavier. And with the synclavier, Frank Zappa got a Grammy Award 1988 for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. That's fantastic. What a, what a great guy. The album is called Jazz from Hell. <laughs> I remember my mother was not thrilled with the title. <laughs> well, thank you guys all for listening. And until next time, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org. dot